Um, but so my name is Doug. If you don't know, I think I know most of you. Um, when uh, and I'm one of the elders here. When I was about six, uh, like a lot of little boys in 1984 or so, I was obsessed with the animated television series He Man. Um, unlike a lot of uh, He-Man, or unlike a lot of uh, superhero franchises where the toys are based on existing properties like movies or, or comic books, He-Man actually originated with the toys. Uh, so they, they made the toys and then they made a TV show about the toys. Um, they became really super successful and around Christmas time in the early 80s, they were hard for parents to find. And I remember one Christmas, and it was probably around 1984 actually, um, I uh, really, really wanted Castle Grayskull. So Castle Grayskull, if you don't know, and actually I just learned there's a new, like as of a couple days ago, Netflix just did a new um, reboot of uh, He-Man. So, yeah, Masters, yeah, He-Man Masters of the Universe something or other. Uh, there's like a, there's a colon something. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it's, it's back and it's, you know, there was a, re anyway, whatever. This is a third reboot, fourth reboot maybe. Anyway, so watch it on Netflix. Um, so anyway, the uh, Castle Grayskull, though, this toy that I wanted was the Fortress of Power, where the masters of the universe, He-Man, Tila, and the Sorcerer, uh, gathered to wage war against the forces of Skeletor and his hordes of Snake Mountain. Now, the Castle Grayskull uh, was a lot bigger than a lot of the other toys, uh, He-Man toys, and um, I knew, so whenever I would go visit um, my, my dad's parents, my paternal grandparents, my grandma would often uh, buy me a He-Man figure in the mall. But Castle Grayskull was sort of off limits. So as a uh, six-year-old, I sort of figured it must be a little more expensive or there's something special about it. Um, and I also kind of had heard that it was hard to find that Christmas, so I didn't know whether I was going to get it. But so that Christmas, we drove up from St. Louis, Missouri, where my parents lived and where I lived, to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where my maternal grandparents lived. And um, my grandma, when we got there, uh, she knew very quickly, because we that's all I could talk about, that I really wanted uh, Castle Grayskull. And so um, after a little while, after the, the hugs and coffee and whatever, uh, she grabbed an empty plastic milk jug and took me down to the basement. And together we spray painted this milk jug green and we cut down the sides like the toy, if you don't know the Castle Grayskull toy, there's like the outside of it and then you open it up and it's got the interior and you can put your figures in there and, and play on the inside and you can close it. Anyway, so she cut it down the side and so we could open up the milk carton and put the He-Man figures in there. And I uh, took a razor blade and cut a kind of arc in the front. So it had a drawbridge and this is a milk carton, remember? So like the plastic, you can kind of pull down and you've got a drawbridge. And so um, I, uh, I knew what Castle Grayskull, the real one, looked like, the toy, because my friend Charlie had one. So I, I tried to paint the outside of this milk jug to look exactly like the stones and the drawbridge and the dungeon of Castle Grayskull. So my grandma made, of course, my brother wanted one too at this point. So my brother and her made a uh, milk jug of Castle Grayskull as well. And it was, it was kind of fun. I enjoyed playing with my grandma, but uh, as I uh, started to try to play with it, the proportions of the figures were all wrong. The He-Man was you know, much bigger than the, um, it, it, Castle Grayskull was much bigger than Milk Jug. So when you put He-Man in there, he seemed like he was giant. Um, so, uh, and there were sharp edges on the drawbridge. So when you tried to pull it down, I would kind of cut my hands and it was, it was fine. But deep down, I knew that this Milk Jug probably meant that I wasn't getting the real Castle Grayskull that Christmas. So a few days later, that Christmas morning, I was passed a larger than average box that contained, after all, the real Castle Grayskull with its working drawbridge and proper proportions. So in the Focus on the Family radio drama version of this story, I would thank my parents for the gift, but would discover that for all its faults, I loved the plastic milk jug. And uh, because it was made uh, together with love uh, and my grandma and all that, 
but I was six. I uh, believe that we did take the plastic milk jug home, but I don't remember ever playing with it again. The milk jug was a copy and a shadow of what was sold by Mattel. The reality, however, was found at Toys R Us. <laughs> In today's passage, the author of Hebrews tells us a similar kind of story with less 1980s materialism. As uh, Dick has been teaching over the past few weeks, the author of Hebrews has been arguing that Jesus is our great high priest, superior to the high priests that were serving at the temple at the time that the letter of Hebrews was written. And in chapter eight, the chapter that we're looking at today, that Linda read just a minute ago, um, we are told that Jesus serves not in a temple made by human hands or the hands of mortals, but in the eternal sanctuary of God in heaven. But if you look at the beginning, the author doesn't actually completely dismiss the importance of the, <clears throat> of the tabernacle. So just quickly, if you don't remember, the tabernacle was a kind of like portable temple that the Israelites carried around. It was made of cloth and people call it the tent, but it's not like a Boy Scout tent. It's like a, more like a carnival sort of tent that they'd pull around. Um, the author doesn't actually dismiss the importance of the tabernacle. In fact, the author says the tabernacle is called a, re a representation of the actual heavenly sanctuary of God. And the accuracy of this representation was so important that the author reminds us that Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the plan, the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. The tabernacle, this tent, said something about God and his dwelling place. And in fact, the author tells us it was a shadow of heavenly reality. So for many readers, um, at least the, the educator hearers or readers of this letter, the language of shadows and copies might have brought to mind Plato's allegory of the cave, which is probably familiar to a lot of you, but maybe not everybody. So do we have kids, any kids today that can help me? Um, okay, so if you want, kids can come forward, any kids that are willing. And I, I'm going to try to talk on this so Zoom can hear me, but maybe if, you, if you're up there, you can Zoom out so you can see what's going on down there. Okay, if you're a kid at heart, if you could come forward to, I need like five people, just five people. I'm a kid at heart. Thanks, man. Oh. Eleazar, you want to come up? <laughs> All right. So, um, thank you. Do we, uh, up in the, the, uh, the booth, do we have, um, can you turn on the, the overhead mics? Are you able to hear me? He's saying yes. Okay, good. I'll, I'll, I'll. I'll try to repeat this very quickly on Zoom afterwards. So just try to watch and imagine Plato's allegory of the cave. Oh, actually, I can do it from here. Great. Okay. So, um, okay. So all of you over on this side, actually everybody on this side, um, and Kenny and Ken, if you want to move over that side too, uh, and you're all prisoners in a cave. All right. So you can sit down and actually uh, turn to face that wall. All right. And then Marilyn, you're going to be a fire. So you're going to turn that on. And aim that at um, aim that at the the cave. Okay, um, and Rachel, can you come forward and do your best shadow puppets in front of that um, in front of that light? So, can you see that at all? No, not, maybe not really. Well, um, let's see, Claire. What do you think that is that your mom is doing? Okay, so in the story that Plato is telling, there's all these people that are imprisoned for some reason in the cave. We don't know why. And there's a fire on the outside of the cave. There, so the mouth of the cave, the opening of the cave, has a fire outside of it. And occasionally things walk or move in front of the fire. And the prisoners in the cave are trying to figure out what those things are. And they have different theories and ideas. But they, it's really all that they can get. 
All right, so then Claire, um, you're freed from the cave one day. Hurrah! So you turn around and you walk up. Uh, yeah, and you see, oh, the, it's not a butterfly or a butterfly or a whatever it is, a, a, a bunny. It's actually your mom <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing hand puppets. So that's interesting, but the problem is if you look at that light, and I just changed the batteries in it this morning, so it's pretty bright, it'll hurt your eyes if you look directly into that light. And so we're told in Plato's Allegory of the Cave that the prisoner that was freed actually decides, you know, that light is really bright and it's not so fun outside, so she's going to turn around and just continue watching the puppets in the cave. But then someday, uh, somebody actually goes down, and uh, Rachel, you can play this role as well. Um, you go down and you grab Claire and you pull her out of the cave and force her past the, uh, the, the fire. And so she then begins to see her eyes begin to adjust and she can kind of see reality out in, out in the rest of the world. And then one day, uh, um, Rachel shows Claire the sun. And she realizes that that bright light that she saw down that fire that Marilyn is pretending to be was not actually the brightest light in the world, but in fact, just a kind of smaller version of what the sun is. All right, thanks, thanks all, you can sit down. Thanks to the youngest heart. So Plato's allegory is about, he's talking in the Republic about education and enlightenment and how when people, you know, people have these theories and then as they learn more and more, eventually sometimes it's kind of painful and you, you push back because you like the pictures on the cave wall better. But then as your eyes adjust and you learn more and more, you're able to see more, but that process can sometimes be kind of painful. But this was a really popular idea that had con caught on in the first century in all sorts of philosophy. Paul actually uses it as well in the letters to the Colossians when he says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with a regard to a religious festival or new moon celebration or Sabbath day. These things are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Still, when you're bound up in a shadow, uh, in a cave, sorry, um, a metaphorical cave, the shadows on the wall are sometimes your best representation of reality. Until someone frees you and you can leave the cave, that's all you have. Um, so the Israelites, for the Israelites, the tabernacle was sort of like that shadow on the cave wall. It's not perfect, but it, it is something. There is some reflection or projection of the reality outside into the cave. It's better than the darkness that's the rest of the cave. In one of my favorite C.S. Lewis essays, Transposition, C.S. Lewis observes that one of the scandals of Christianity, one of the things that's really hard to get past for some people, is the fact that deeply spiritual and sacred things often find common representation with physical objects and actions. Uh, when he, he begins the essay, it's actually an essay he wrote for Pentecost Sunday, and so he's talking about speaking in tongues, and I can kind of lead you through that later if you're interested in what he says about that. But he eventually uh, makes the argument that one of the things that happens in Christianity is you've got a richer medium, that world outside the cave, that's being projected onto a poorer medium, like the cave wall. So you're going from three dimensions to two dimensions. And so he, he writes, this is a long quote from C.S. Lewis, if you're making a piano version of a piece originally scored for an orchestra, then the same piano notes which represent flutes in one passage must represent violins in another. We're all uh, familiar with this kind of transposition or adaptation from a richer to a poorer medium. The most familiar example of this is drawing. The problem here is to represent the three-dimensional world on a flat sheet of paper. The solution is perspective, and perspective means that we must give one or more, uh, more than one value to a two-dimensional shape. Thus, when you're drawing a cube, we use an acute angle or diagonal uh, to represent the right, what would be a right angle in the real world. But elsewhere, 
an acute angle on the paper may represent what's already an acute angle in the real world. For example, the point of a spear or the gable of a house, the very same shape which you draw to give an illusion of a straight road receding from the spectator into the, the sunset or whatever, is also the shape that you use for a dunce's cap. As with lines, so with shading, your brightest light in the picture, in fact, in literal fact, is only plain white paper. And this must do for the sun or the lake in evening or snow or human flesh. So he argues that in human experience, heaven's richer medium is projected onto Earth's poorer one. So um, <laughs> anyone know what this is? Yeah, Paul. Yeah, so this is a tesseract. It's not a tesseract like Wrinkle in Time or whatever. It's a. It's supposed to be. I'm not going to go into this very much, but it's a. Uh, it's supposed to be what a shadow of a four-dimensional object would look like in our three-dimensional world. So es essentially, you've got. Uh, so quickly, we can talk about this in discussion. There's like eight cubes that are folded onto each other in four-dimensional space. If yeah, think about it for a minute and then move on. <laughs> um, in Edward, Edwin Albert's classic, uh, Abbott, sorry, uh, classic Victorian story, Flatland, uh, he tells a story of creatures that actually live in a two-dimensional plane, and they, they have their lives in two dimensions as the square and the triangle or whatever. But one day, the creatures in this Flatland encounter a sphere, and the sphere passes through their world. From their perspective, the sphere seems to be a circle that grows and grows and grows and then shrinks and shrinks and shrinks as the middle wider part of the sphere gets closer and closer uh, and passes through the, the, um, the flatland and then goes beyond it. Although the flatlander's perception is incomplete, each circle is part of the sphere. Likewise, those of you who remember black and white television, televisions uh, might recall that they would depict the same broadcast in black and white as a color television. So you could watch the same, you could pick up the same signal and watch them, but the, the black and white television would just show you whatever, the show in black and white, and the color television would show you it in color. But on the black and white television, many of the colors would be presented by the same hue of gray. So the same hue of gray has to stand in for light pink and light, light blue, et cetera. In today's technology, this is somewhat similar to the way in which streaming services adjust the bandwidth and screen re resolution for the receiving devices. So if you're watching something on an iPhone, it's uh, smaller than it is on a big screen. So the tabernacle and later the temple actually um, did in some form become part of the uh, dwelling place of God. So they're not just the shadow, it doesn't seem like. They're, they're, they're more like maybe that, that bisection of the circle and flatland or um, the black and white television broadcast. You're still getting the broadcast. It's just a diminished version of it or a slice of it. So in Exodus 40, we're told the cloud, uh, that is the cloud of God's glory, covered the tent of meeting as soon as the tabernacle was completed. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord had filled the temple. And something similar happens in 1 Kings after Solomon builds, um, sorry, the that thing that I just said, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then in First Kings, when Solomon builds his temple, which is a permanent stone version of this movable tent, um, after the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the most holy place, we're told that the cloud of the Lord's glory filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. And yet, even after all this happens, Solomon recognizes that it's not really final or complete because he says, but will God really dwell on earth? 
The heavens, even the highest heaven, can't contain you, how much less this temple that I've built. The strange paradox of the infinite God dwelling in the physical temple is repeated in Ezekiel 10 in the sad and terrifying moment when God's presence finally leaves it prior to its destruction by the Babylonians. Ezekiel says, then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim, remember the two kind of winged monster things guarding the ark, uh, and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer, co outer court, like the voice of the God Almighty when he speaks. And then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. And as I watched, the cherubim spread out their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them and they stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the Lord was above them. The temple could not contain God, but for a time it seems to have been a place where God, or at least part of him, was physically present. It, is, it was this place where the holiness and the mystery of God was incarnated by a building with areas with increasing levels of cleansing and holiness required to enter. If you remember when we looked at the video a couple of weeks ago, the imagery of trees and pomegranates was painted on the walls and carved into the pillars suggesting the Garden of Eden. And some have suggested that the cherubim who stood over the Ark of the Covenant represented the cherubim who were stationed at the east side of the Garden of Eden to prevent Adam and Eve from entering God's presence again. Originally in Exodus, we're told the Ark contained manna, which was the supernatural bread that God provided in Exodus, Aaron's staff that budded to show his authority, and stone tablets of the law written by God. But by the time 1 Kings is written or you know, tells the story of Solomon, uh, Solomon, we're told that the only thing in the Ark were the stone tablets of the law. The temple is then a picture, it's a, it's a bisection, it's a projection of God and his, uh, his sanctuary. But it tells us something about that covenant um, that was established. The temple invites us to approach the throne of God as subjects of the king, approaching the edge of the paradise from which we were excelled, uh, exiled sorry, by recognizing the severity of our sins and, and recognizing it not just by you know, intellectually, but also by action through the slaughter of animals, showing that there was a real cost of, a cost of blood for our sins and repenting of them by ceremonial washing. However, like the body that dies when the spirit leaves it, the intersection of heaven and earth at the first temple was broken uh, when the covenant was broken by the people of Israel and God, like the spirit that leaves the body, left the temple. When the second temple is built in Ezra, there's no mention of a cloud of God's glory filling it um, as it did the first temple in the tabernacle. And while Jesus calls the temple his father's house a couple of times, he also describes his own body as the temple that will be torn and rebuilt. The author of Hebrews tells us that all of this was a shadow and a poor representation, not only of the reality of heaven, but also of the way that we're to approach God. So this whole thing is in fact sort of like the shadows on the wall. Like the allegory of the cave though, once freed from the cave, it takes some time before the pe person who escapes can understand that the sun, rather than the fire, is the brightest light in the world. There's a new covenant, the sun, Hebrews tells us, um, that is not based on a fearful approach to hol a holy God, but rather in the participation in the ministry and person somehow of Jesus. Um, and we are in this new covenant are invited to eat at his table and be part of his royal family. The law will not be something we must practice and follow and approach carefully through many curtains and stages as it was in the temple, but it will be part of our very nature if we participate in the nature of Christ. In the end of this passage in Hebrews, the author says, 
But in fact, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, the old high priests, as the covenant of which he is a minister, a minister, mediator, is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God's found fault with the people and said, uh, speaking of the new covenant, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. While I discarded my grandma's green milk jug pretty quickly in favor of the real Castle Grayskull playset, I remember that the toy that I loved most was my He-Man sword and breastplate. It could be kind of fun to play with the little figures in the Castle Grayskull for a while, but my imagination was more free when I could play He-Man himself rather than projecting him onto this little plastic figure, even if he did have magic power punch action when you twisted his waist. Um, I think this is maybe sort of like what Hebrews is saying. In the New Covenant, we, in the words of Paul, participate in the divine nature. God doesn't only abide in his temple, but we abide in him as he abides in us through the Holy Spirit. Our own physical bodies become the poorer media that, rep that while remaining a biological machine, is also the site for the incarnation. Paul tells us that our bodies, like Jesus's, are temples of the Holy Spirit. And the new covenant is accompanied by new and reframed practices. The high churches call these actions sacraments. But when we practice them with varying understandings of what they mean, across Christendom, we enter into a new covenant and begin to practice the, the actions of that new covenant. One of these is baptism. The old covenant included rules about ceremonial washing. You had to wash your hands before you came into the temple. But Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that baptism is not about washing, but a projection of death and resurrection. Paul writes, we were therefore buried with him through uh, baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. If the old covenant picture was to clean the sin off our flesh, the new covenant recognizes that the old flesh is past saving and must die to be raised again, as Paul says, and to be clothed with new flesh uh, and Paul says in Galatians, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So somehow we have this richer medium of a death and resurrection being projected onto this physical action of baptism, of going down into the, the water and coming back up into resurrection. Some of us are blessed to participate in the sacrament or the sacred projection of marriage. Way back in Jesus, in Jesus way back in Genesis, we're told that marriage involves two beings becoming flesh. But in Ephesians, Paul tells us that marriage depicts and perhaps enacts the relationship of Christ and the church. Writing to married men, he says, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are parts of his body. For that reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So somehow the psychological and biological union in marriage is something like the black and white broadcast of the color depiction of Jesus's union with those who are part of the body of the church. And then finally today, we celebrate communion. It's a memorial act 
to be sure. That is a, a way of remembering. Jesus told his disciples when he gave them the bread for the last Passover meal, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes when we take communion. But it, it is also, as Jesus says, an act of establishing a new covenant. In Mark, the language is even more explicit. When they are eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples, take this, it is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, uh, he gave it to them, they all drank it, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, or of the covenant, which has been poured out for many. The Gospel of John doesn't record a version of the Last Supper, but does include one of Jesus' related, related teachings. Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my body is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. When we eat the bread and drink the cup of the communion of Jesus, a lot of different things are happening at once. But whether only in metaphor or in some mystical reduction of heaven's richer medium onto our poorer one of a cup and a piece of bread, we proclaim our union with Christ. So let's do that now. <laughs> 